0: Bright Spark is a podcast about harm reduction. In this podcast we feature people doing the bold, innovative and necessary work that is saving lives and fighting against the stigmatization of drug users and drug use.
1: This is Bright Spark number 5 in The Dark Nets.
0: In this episode, we feature Michael Gilbert, a public health technologist with specializations in epidemiology, health informatics, and harm reduction.
1: Michael's past work in these fields includes design and implementation of public health informatics tools, research on the successes and challenges in community-based distribution of naloxone, and the development of technologies to support the health and well-being of stigmatized populations.
0: I asked Michael to come in and explain the dark net and crypto markets and their effects on drug consumption and the state of harm reduction within these spheres.
2: My name is Michael Gilbert. I'm an epidemiologist and a harm reductionist. I work in research about drugs, uh, how people use them, and the role they play in their lives. Uh, and then I also participate in direct service through Portland People's Outreach Project, before that through programs in Boston and the Bay Area.
0: We asked you here to talk about some of your research and knowledge around darknet and crypto markets. Will you give us a little of your background in how you know about these things? I was
2: in the Bay Area at the time when crypto markets and cryptocurrencies were first emerging publicly. Uh, I've been reading about drugs and drug use since I was a teenager. When these new markets emerged and when their forums emerged as alternatives and complements to ClearNet drug user forums, I thought they were really interesting venues for peer-to-peer communication support and for providing access to information and materials that had been squeezed out of conventional internet communications platforms. I also realized fairly early on that the censorship of information on Clearnet forums meant that there was information that was being lost to people who were new to talking about drugs on the internet or who were just learning about drugs or just starting to use drugs or just starting to buy drugs that were flowing through online markets and communities. And so I thought they were important things to understand so as to better observe and communicate our collective wisdom as people use drugs.
0: The terminology for me, clearnet versus the darknet is new. So when I say clearnet,
2: I'm talking about the internet that most people understand and use every day. Websites that people use, the apps that people use to communicate with one another where your network address is known and that sort of comprise what people think of as like Internet, capital I. And there's a lot of lore and about the connection between the internet and drugs, you know, about how like some of the first communications on early academic internets was coordination of drug sales between post-grads like Caltech and other California colleges. And so like as long as there has been an internet, there has been discussion of drugs on the internet. When I refer to crypto markets or uh, hidden services, I'm talking about internet sites that operate using technologies that hide your network address. So rather than knowing the specific IP address of the server that I'm using, which could then be attached to a web host, which could then be attached to one of their clients and their true names. The darknet have this sort of layer of obfuscation where neither the people hosting the sites nor the people accessing those sites are exposing their network addresses and potentially their true name identities to the other people involved in those communities.
0: Well, walk us through, then, what the process is for people accessing the darknet.
2: You generally use a Tor browser, which is a web browser much like Firefox, but that routes your traffic through the Tor network or through whatever network you happen to be accessing. And essentially uses proxies so that your network address doesn't make it to the server, but the messages that you're sending and receiving uh, can complete the path. You would open up a browser on your laptop, you would enter a URL that generally ends in .onion, and you would be able to share information and communicate with the server that's hosting the website that you're using. When it comes to what it would take to actually coordinate a transaction on the markets, so you would go to a market, uh, you might find a vendor on that market that you wanted to coordinate a transaction with, And then uh, generally you would pay for those services or those materials using a cryptocurrency. You know, these are internet-based markets, much like conventional online vending platforms, somewhat comparable to like an Etsy or an eBay, uh, except that they use these identity protection technologies. uh, And they also offer escrow services so that you're not paying money generally directly to the vendor, but rather you're putting the money into the market who then holds it until they get a confirmation from the buyer that they've received the product, at which point they would release the funds to the vendor. Aside from the privacy technologies and to some extent those escrow functions, they operate largely the same way that any other major e-commerce platform would operate. You have somebody who's operating the market itself and uh, attendant forums and then you have the vendors who are selling through that forum and those markets and so the vendors can communicate with potential buyers with other vendors there are a lot of the features that we might consider standard for e-commerce things like ratings for products ratings for vendors also ratings for buyers forums where people can talk about their experiences with vendors and products And mechanisms for dispute resolution, if you receive something that wasn't as advertised or if you never receive the thing that you paid for, the market acts as the arbiter to resolve whatever disputes might arise.
0: If you have these materials exchanged and the funds are in escrow, Uh it relies, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit more on trust that the recipient will be honest and say, yes, I got this. It's what was delivered and promised because the recipient can recreate a new identity next week. There's no like having to stand by your name and the same with even the seller, right?
2: Yeah, that's true. That's mitigated in a couple of different ways. In the case of vendors or sellers, they generally have a vendor bond on a market, which is money that they put up, which is sort of their earnest money saying, I'm gonna open up shop here, I'm gonna sell products. If the vendor is consistently involved in disputes where people get less than what they thought they were gonna get, or something other than what they were gonna get, or if they never get what the buyer thought they were gonna receive, then that vendor can get banned from the market. Now they can come back, but then they have to come back as a new vendor with no reputation. And so there's a, there's a reputation economy that operates both ways here. So similarly, if you're a buyer, you can't necessarily create a new account, go onto a darknet market and buy a brick of Coke because you don't really have the bona fides or the trust established. Some vendors will only work with people who have a string of prior purchases and where the buyer has been well-reviewed by previous vendors. So if you're constantly pestering somebody with questions or if you're not following standards and practices and norms around encrypting your information uh, in a way that protects both the vendor and the buyer, you're not going to fare too well on either side of that transaction. From a buyer reputation perspective, people often make smaller purchases to start. That's also often the preference of people who are new to these markets. They don't want to jump right in sending large amounts of cryptocurrency to strangers on the internet in the hope that they'll receive drugs. Although sometimes maybe they only want to do it once. You know, they're trying to buy a lifetime supply of a thing that they don't have access to locally. They want to pool their risk in a single transaction, but it might be hard to find a vendor who's willing to accept that. Now, there are other exceptions that can be made on either side. Like we're talking about an escrow system, but there's a practice generally referred to as finalizing early or FE-ing where if I'm a new buyer and I approach a vendor and I want to purchase something, they'll say, okay, you have no reputation, so you're going to have to FE for this listing, meaning finalize early, meaning release the funds to me before you receive the product. Once you've done that a couple of times, then other vendors or that same vendor might be more willing to go through the escrow system, engage in higher volume transactions, and put more trust in you. So the, the trust economy and the reputation economy is a core part of how these markets work. They're often referred to, especially cryptocurrencies, are referred to as like trustless systems. But in this case, there, there really is a, a layer of trust and reputation.
0: Are the people organizing these sales and transactions and these types of rules for each market that's happening? Or are there at this point a common set of rules between many markets?
2: There are some standard practices, things like an expectation that you're going to encrypt your address, say, when you send that to the vendor. And the vendor will... Establish expectations within their profile page, say, they'll have uh, the terms of engagement spelled out. At the market level, there are things like the vendor bonds that help to enforce or incentivize the integrity of vendors. And then there are some markets that will be selective about what can be sold or displayed on their market. Some markets flirted with the notion of banning certain drugs that they see as being particularly volatile in terms of consumer health or legal risk. Say fentanyl is the classic example. Uh, If they were to say you can't sell fentanyl on this market, then the people who have been selling fentanyl-containing products can continue to sell those same products but without the open disclosure that, hey, these Roxy's actually have 400 micrograms of fentanyl per pill. And so there's a disincentive to trying to prohibit certain substances from being sold in markets. There are other places where that has been effectively done, where markets have essentially siloed themselves for particular drug types. So, you know, there are cannabis specific markets, there have been markets and forums that specifically deal with, say, psychedelic drugs to the exclusion of stimulants and opiates and, and other types. There's some self-regulation on the market side, but that's almost always happening in communication and discourse with people both on the buyer and vendor side and within the context of there being competing markets for competing or diverse interests and the knowledge that the decisions of a given market have to be made in the context of the larger market ecosystem.
1: Do you have any idea about the overall percentage of drug sales that occur? Yeah, there's been a lot of really good
2: research into how people use the markets, like the volume of sales, the total number of sales, the total value of sales, the total volume of products that those sales represent. What's harder to do is, one, state that with absolute confidence because, A, we only know about formalized transactions. Generally, that's done by counting the number of units of feedback for a given listing. It's expected that when you buy something, you'll leave feedback for that transaction. So if there's a vendor who has a listing for, you know, an ounce of cannabis, they might have 500 reviews for that. And so we might presume they sold 500 ounces of cannabis. But what we don't know is if one of those buyers later made direct contact with a vendor through the forums and said, "Hey, instead of paying a commission on each of these sales, why don't we just deal directly here?" And I'd like five pounds, please." And so now you've got a transaction that was facilitated and coordinated through the market in the forums that's not represented by a review on a listing. The other challenge is double counting of transactions. So products flow in and out of crypto markets. So I think it's important to understand them as part of supply chains where somebody could buy you know, a brick of Coke face to face. They could resell it by the ounce using crypto markets. People who buy those ounces could resell them by the gram in face to face markets where they live. In that case, uh, we have a great number of transactions concerning the same product. I'd also mention that we really only know what people say that they're selling on these markets. So I could, as a vendor, create a shop and say, I'm selling uh, Splenda packets. And that is sort of a dog whistle for people who know through some other channel that Splenda packets means something else. And these are $300 Splenda packets, so take your best guess. So, you know, So we can't necessarily with full confidence say what is being sold in a given transaction. There are a lot of caveats when it comes to what we can know and say with confidence based on what we can see by looking at the markets. So with respect to the number of transactions that are taking place with those products, most of them are probably gonna be in face-to-face markets, but all of the products flow through the same channel, and so It's a little hard to make a direct comparison, which would also of course require that we knew how many transactions there were outside of markets. If I were to ask somebody for a rough estimate of the total number of drug transactions that took place in Portland this week, that would be a really challenging question to answer. Do you count the sale by the, uh, say, kilo, ounce, gram, and part of a gram separately? So are we looking at the number of discrete transactions? Are we looking at the volume of product that flows through them? Are we looking at the number of people involved or who have used these products? Which is all to say that it's a really challenging comparison to make. But to give like a back of the napkin answer... Not to be evasive. We're still talking about the significant minority of products that people are using on any given day. There's also a technological barrier to use of the markets, which I think is important to recognize. I described it as oh, it's simple. You just open your web browser and start buying drugs. But not everybody is comfortable with that. So there's a little bit of like a self efficacy barrier or a social barrier towards the acceptance of this form of e-commerce as a thing that you can or should do or accept the risks associated with. And then there's just raw technical barriers along the lines of, do people have the uh, familiarity with things like PGP encryption or cryptocurrency transactions to actually complete a transaction and establish the kind of reputation they might need in order to do higher volume transactions uh, in the future? You know, a lot of what we know about these Things are either through our peer networks or through, unfortunately, indictments. There are a number of cases where people are ordering, say, tens of thousands of counterfeit opioid tablets, usually like oxys and roxys and and the like, that they're reselling in bulk or reselling as individual units. So a lot of people, I suspect, have used products that flow through these markets without actually knowing about the markets, knowing how to access the markets, feeling comfortable accessing the markets. But nonetheless, they're part of what brought that product into their hands.
0: What types of drugs are available on these markets? There's obviously going to be things like oxys, things like that, but are there further outliers, people making new drugs? Absolutely. So you'll find your sort of conventional drugs, your
2: heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, diverted or counterfeit pharmaceutical drugs, cannabis, all manner of tryptamines, phenethylamines. The markets also operate in tandem with the research chemical markets, When I say research chemicals, I mean psychoactive drugs that aren't scheduled or controlled by domestic or international law. There's sort of an interplay between those research chemical markets, which sometimes operate on the clear net. You can go onto a website and you can buy something that's not illegal, so long as it's not advertised for human consumption. But if there's a ban on that, Then we might see those products come into crypto markets. Or we might see those products already on crypto markets in order to serve two segments of the populations who are interested in them. Some people would rather buy a research chemical that is legal through a clearnet site. They're not doing anything wrong, and they have plausible deniability based on the fact that it's not for human consumption, and that's perfectly fine with them. Other people might not want that form of potential exposure or liability, and so they'd prefer to use a more secure channel for access to an otherwise legal product. With respect to the kinds of drugs that are there from an active ingredient standpoint, I think it's uh, it's very diverse, and we find both conventional and a lot of the novel psychotropic substances or research chemicals that we've seen emerge in, in the last uh, decades. I'd also note there's a difference in the format of drugs. So when we look at something like fentanyl, say, when you're selling a fentanyl product through a crypto market, you might be able to prepare it in a different way and find an audience that your local hand-to-hand, face-to-face market network might not support. So an example of that would be fentanyl nasal sprays. It's fairly uncommon to see uh, reports of people selling fentanyl-containing nasal sprays through hand-to-hand market. If you go down to Old Town or any other sort of neighborhood where people go to buy and sell drugs, you're probably not going to find fentanyl blotter in a fentanyl nasal sprays. But in crypto markets, you can find those things. And there are some reasons why. One is, again, there's a market for it. There are people who want access to a product that is easier to control your dose. They want access to something that's maybe more discreet. But there's not somebody in their neighborhood who's aware of or skilled in the kind of volumetric dosing practices that are required in order to prepare the product in that way.
1: Is there philosophical reasons that the markets have come up in this capitalist juncture of supply and demand? Do you see some kind of philosophical approach that's different?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Especially in the earlier days of the markets and forums, there's a lot of discussion about agorist, libertarian political philosophy and about body autonomy and this principle of allowing a free market to give people the choice to find and make decisions to put things in their bodies. That was a really loud and proud tenet of the markets, especially in the early days. There's some great research that's been done along those lines by Rasmus Munksgard, who's at the University of Montreal, that sort of tracks the political history of the discourse in, the, in crypto market forums, specifically on the Silk Road forums. These markets also emerged at a time and in a place where those agorist, libertarian ideas, which were prevalent in the early cryptocurrency communities and then in the crypto market communities, really were flourishing. So like the San Francisco Bay Area, 2011, 2012, 2013, there were a lot of people who were being exposed to ideas like the non-aggression principle and other tenets of agorist political theory that helped to explain to them what the, what people might do and how people might behave if the state didn't get to control what you had access to through markets. They would point to things like self-regulation on the part of vendors or markets as the market finding harmony in service of free choice and free action.
0: So with harm reduction that's been around IV drug use, a lot of it originated from reducing the spread of HIV and hep C. And at this point, a lot of the focus is now on overdose. So harm reduction as a political movement or more organized social movement or even social service has been slow to catch up with crypto markets and slow to interact with them. So I'm wondering, are people doing harm reduction type political work in these uh, environments? And what does that look like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there there are a couple of different ways that that's manifested over time. As we've seen in the context of prohibition, when you prohibit access to a product, it can undermine transparency about the contents of that product. So people might not know that there's fentanyl in the heroin they're buying. They might not be connected to a peer network that has access to information about that product or they might have access to the peer network, but there might be a disincentive to say something negative about the supplier of that product because you're going to have to go back to them in order to get product again tomorrow or you know, sometime in the future, and there might be retaliation. Whereas on the internet, where people only know you buy a pseudonym and nobody can retaliate in a physical way or withhold product from you, then you're allowed to share information, and that is seen as contributing towards... A reduction of harm through the introduction of transparency and discussion of, of products. That's also related to the emergence of direct consumer forensic technologies. So places like ecstasydata.org or energy control that provide quantitative and qualitative forensic analyses of drug products, all of a sudden found a new market where. Somebody could buy something on a crypto market, they could send it in, they state in advance, I got this from this you know, from this vendor and here's the code that I'm going to use and then the code would go up and now there are organized systems for this where they're essentially mystery shopping of vendors where a new buyer will purchase a small quantity and that one-off purchase has already been logged and documented by a panel of people who are then able to vouch for the fact that they acquired the product from this vendor, sent it to a testing facility, and maintain a peer-validated chain of custody around the results, both the product and the results. That self-organization supports higher confidence in the integrity of the information about what's in that vendor's product. The people who are providing these forensic services generally discourage any kind of inference about whether a test is representative of a vendor's product or a product in general or whether the, you know, 40 milligrams that were submitted are representative of the ounce from which it came. But the self-organizing of participants in these online communities a testament to the sort of peer support harm reduction ethos uh that is one of the sort of philosophical underpinnings and claims for the creation uh, of the markets a good example of that would be fernando Caravia, who is dr x on the silk road forums he also runs energy control uh, which is one of those direct consumer drug checking services it's based in spain he is a medical professional generally works with people who use drugs And provided candid, non-judgmental information about drugs and drug use with the expertise that he had developed as a health professional. So that's the sort of information level of providing access to somebody who you can ask a question about with medical training. But there are others who have taken different approaches it's not specifically through crypto markets, but through online forums. And there are people who organize forums where peers can communicate with one another. that are specifically dedicated to discussion of events associated with drug use, experiences associated with drug use, practices that will facilitate the best possible outcomes for people who are using drugs. And so purposive creation and nurturing of communities where people can talk openly about their interests and experiences related to drugs, uh, I think is probably one of the most useful uh, ways that people can enact a harm reduction practice in online communities. And a lot of times that's not, again, by being like the locus of authority themselves, but by creating a platform and getting out of the way. But then, of course, there are also people who are selling and offering things like naloxone through these markets back in the day when Alpha Bay was one of the markets, they had a policy where they would waive your vendor bond if you were selling naloxone. It's not uncommon if you look through the markets on any given day, you might find a kit with some naloxone, maybe some syringes, or maybe it's intranasal. Uh, often if you look at the picture of the kit and the packaging and the instructions, you might be able to identify which of our friendly neighborhood overdose education naloxone distribution programs built that kit. And that is being offered as a means of access to people who don't necessarily have the ability to walk into a brick and mortar service or a face-to-face service or, you know, the pharmacy in their town even. And then there are people who are providing access to materials, not necessarily through the crypto markets yet, but through online mail-based services. So, you know, one of the classic examples of that would be Tracy Hilton in San Francisco, who's been very loud and proud about providing naloxone to people by mail there's next distro out of new york which is really making a push to reach people through online communities who aren't served by face-to-face services or secondary exchange so i think there are a lot of opportunities for people both to facilitate peer-to-peer communication for people to facilitate access to materials and to better reach people who aren't necessarily gonna engage with a face-to-face service.
0: People coming together and using drugs is a way that people have learned, especially with like vein injection. I think about the learned experience from someone who's really good at it or, or watching them inject and figuring out what you're doing wrong and learning from there is something that's missing from here. And that's not really a, a good thing. But then on the other hand, I, I imagine that this kind of marketplace is a lot safer for a lot of people. just different has different challenges and different opportunities i certainly
2: recognize things like the sort of purity and fidelity of the products that people buy as compared to what they're expecting on crypto markets as potential protective factors so if you are trying to buy a particular drug and you want to make sure that you're actually getting that drug and that it's not going to have whatever adulterants might be in your local supply certainly that could have a protective factor. But there is the counterpoint of products flowing faster than information, where once you break down the connection between having to know somebody in order to get something, now you're in a situation where uh, you have people who are ordering drugs, who have access to drugs, about which they have little direct information So, of course, they can read the experience reports of other people who've used the drug. They can watch YouTube videos about injection practices. They can use all the resources that so many people have spent so much time and effort composing to try and help them to navigate their own health and safety. But they're not necessarily always going to do that. And they're not necessarily always going to find the best information. So, you know, one of the things that I have been paying attention to a lot in recent years Is the effect of both digital literacy and textual and maybe even scientific or health literacy with respect to the information that people find. It's the search terms that you use on Google in order to find the forum where people are talking about the thing are gonna influence where you get your information. The way that you navigate the forums, like if do you read through all of every thread or do you just read down to where you hear what you wanna hear and then you quit? Or do you weigh information from certain personas more than others? In your decisions about what to use, how much to use, how to use it, that can introduce a lot of variability in terms of what the received wisdom is about the best way to meet your individual needs. And so I think there's also room for tools to sort of distill collective wisdom or to identify points of controversy and contention. So that when people seek information, they are getting a representative understanding of the advice that their peers are offering and not just
0: whatever answer happened to pop up on the first page of the Google results. When I was working on creating some material in Pittsburgh, blue light, is that still active? Yeah, yeah. Blue light is still active. And then there was another one called like, was it just one called drugs? Drugs Forum. Last night, when I was reading through some of the stuff you wrote, and I tried to find those, it's Mm -hmm. much harder to find on Google now. The sites are still around. Blue Light is still around.
2: I mentioned Monica Barrett earlier. Uh, Monica is Tronica, who's the research director for Blue Light and has been sort of helping to facilitate open communications amongst people who use drugs on Blue Light for some years, but who has also paid careful attention to how to organize the forum in such a way that people don't incriminate themselves or jeopardize the availability of the resource going forward. What I mean by that is that just after like FOSTA and SESTA were passed, you know, which were laws that concerned the coordination of sex work online, people who are operating forums related to drugs sort of had a little bit of a, maybe a wake-up call. Around that time, there was a crackdown on a number of forums. Like say Reddit had a very active darknet markets forum that was shut down uh, now they also shut down forums related to things like reloading ammunition and trading rare local beers from town to town because those were deemed to be associated with transactions that could be illicit. Uh, you know selling alcohol or trading alcohol across state lines might run afoul of law. Uh, similarly if you run a forum uh, dedicated towards safe injection practices amongst people who inject drugs There was concern that there would be liability for any actions of those people based on information they got from a service hosted by a given individual or institution. People who are operating the forums are wary of that, I think, and have taken measures to control the scope of conversations. And so in the case of, say, a place like Blue Light, uh, discussing the transaction layer around drugs... Is not permitted. Even things like discussing the price of products and places is very challenging. Because if I say something like a gram of coke costs forty dollars in deep southeast Portland, somebody might say, "Well, shit, I'm paying sixty. Uh, I need to I need to contact this person and find you know that forty dollar gram." So there's this concern that like discussion of things like price might lead to coordination of transactions. Those conversations have been shifted out of clear net forums. They've largely shifted over to places like crypto market forums hmm. where you're free to talk about the products with perfect candor because that's kind of the idea. You're there to buy and sell drugs and to communicate amongst your peers about the drugs that you're buying, selling, using. That's the fundamental purpose of the markets and the forums that are attached to them that's definitely where where that information has gone so crypto market forums crypto forums represent one of the remaining free spaces for discussion of experiences and
0: practices uh, related to drug use on the internet if you are like an old school harm reductionist like out on the street giving out needles What would you recommend to someone like that who doesn't have a lot of experience with something like this? What are ways that they can engage with it or let it inform their practice? I think it's useful for
2: everybody who's working with and for people who use drugs to understand, like, what drugs are now. Like, what drugs are there? What are the options available to the people who they're working with? We might have a lot of messaging around, like, you know, beware of fentanyl. Don't use this or don't use this other new thing. There might be some new opioid you know, that emerges that gets the same treatments. But especially with these sort of newly emerging drugs, I think it's important for people to understand why people might be using those and the incentives towards using them, then address whatever due caution. It might be appropriate with them. So, you know, people might be using some novel synthetic opioid because it doesn't show up on the standard drug panel they get as part of their employment or, as part of whatever other surveillance they might be subject to. And so just understanding the ecosystem and options that are available to people and the context in which people are making choices about what drugs to use is useful. It's also helpful to understand what is in a lot of the counterfeit pharmaceutical med- products that are out there. You know, when people talk about how they're taking 4 milligrams Xanax bars – That's certainly not made by Pfizer. They only make a maximum of two milligrams per tablet. And it may not be uh, alprazolam. It may be etizolam or some other benzo or theanodiasbine analog. And so my advice for people who say, like, I know this is a thing, but like, so what? What do I do about it? Is usually poke around and learn and keep an open mind uh, to try and understand what's going on in the markets that influence the communities that you're working in. It might not be there today, but it may be there tomorrow. The more we can learn about what may be coming down the pike, the better we can equip ourselves to to provide competent advice. The, The only other thing that I would recommend is that we listen to requests from online communities about our services and that we maybe try to use that to help figure out where we should be and how we should provide services because every, every service area has a border and there are people just outside of those borders who might be trying to access information and services. And to the extent that they reach us through the internet and that is where they're at, then that is where we should meet them.
0: Finally, or is there anything you're working on or looking forward to working on soon, especially as a public health technologist? I'm a technical
2: advisor on next distro. That's a really exciting, uh, project and program. It's a a web-based point of access for information and materials for people who use drugs, so specifically naloxone, safer injection supplies. Shout out to Jamie Favaro, the creator and powerhouse behind Next Distro. And then uh, direct-to-consumer drug checking services. I've been hustling quietly to bring that to Portland and to help coordinate Services uh, along those lines around the country, and to run some cross validation of the tools and techniques and terms of service that will be part of those services. And I think to the extent that we can provide better information about what's in people's baggies before it goes into their bodies, we'll be gaining a lot of insight into how to support their well being and providing them more importantly with information so that they can do that themselves.
0: Is that something more specific than just fentanyl yes, fentanyl no?
2: Yeah, so fentanyl yes, fentanyl no, great to have, but fentanyl is only the latest boogeyman in the drugs world. We're going to have new drugs emerging. It's not an if, it's a when. The composition of products in a given market change over time, always have, always will. To the extent that people who use drugs can be directly aware of the contents of the products they're buying, using, and selling, they can continue to navigate the risks and benefits of, of drug use through peer support and collectivism.
1: This episode is produced by myself, Erin Yankee, documentarian and radio producer, and by Alec Dunn, a harm reductionist and a nurse. Thanks to KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, for technical assistance. The intro music is Kaput 7 by Steinzeit and is licensed for use by a Creative Commons non-commercial license and made available from the Free Music Archive.
0: Outro Music is the song Quasi-Stable State by Monopole and is also licensed for use by a Creative Commons non-commercial license and made available from the Free Music Archive.
1: If you have feedback, comments, or suggestions, feel free to get in touch with us at brightsparkharmreduction at gmail.com.
0: Before we wrap this episode up, I just wanted to end this with a quote from Delaney Ellison, who was a harm reductionist in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He wrote, Harm reduction should not be considered an intervention in terms of what providers understand. Harm reduction is not something providers created to help users. Users have always practiced harm reduction, first by controlling what others know about what they do. Providers sometimes need to believe that they are saving lives of people whose lives were never theirs to save in the first place. Users have been maintaining a quality of safety and well-being since they first began the process of behaving in a way that society did not approve. I wanted to include this quote because we emailed it to Michael beforehand, and it seems appropriate as I think it guided many aspects of this interview.